ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey, everybody. It's Jonathan Tepperman, Foreign Policy's Editor-at-Large, and this is FP Playlist. Welcome. Each week, as you know, my goal is to help you wend your way through the seemingly infinite and tangled forest of podcasts out there by recommending one show from somewhere around the world that I think you'll like. This week, I want to tell you about a podcast called What the Hell is Going On? The show is hosted by Danielle Pletka and Mark Thiessen, and produced by the American Enterprise Institute, where they're both scholars. The two offer a take on domestic and international affairs that's conservative, but also lively, rigorous, but also lighthearted. Danny and Mark like to argue, and they do it really well. But the show is not about ideology or partisanship. It's a very smart, very high-level discussion of critical news topics with an extraordinary set of guests brought in to illuminate the issues. The episode we're highlighting this week aired back in December, and it features Danny and Mark talking to the brilliant and also polemical historian Alan Guelzo about the U.S. Electoral College. I know that's not, strictly speaking, an international topic, although arguably what happens in the United States matters in the rest of the world, and so is international that way, but given the outsized role that this weird, antiquated institution, the Electoral College, that is, has played in the last few American elections, I thought it was one worth featuring anyways, and I hope you'll agree. Before we get to the episode, though, I want to play a short conversation I had recently with Danny about the show. Danny Pletka, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, let's start with you telling me about how the podcast came about and how you define its mission. So the podcast came about the usual way that anything happens in Washington, which is that we talked about it for like two years before <laughs> before we finally just sort of jumped into the deep end and started it. You know, everybody who's listening who knows anything about podcasts will know that if you try to find out about best practices and about metrics and about data, you soon discover there's really not a lot of that on podcasts. And we so we just thought we would we would do this. What's our mission? It is to have it is to have an intelligent conservative perspective on frankly, what the hell is going on? There's no better name, and certainly for the end of the Trump administration, no better name for a podcast. Yeah, indeed. Um, you're really good at it. Did you have broadcast experience? You come across like a natural. 
No, not at all. Not I, I'm, I'm not a natural at all. When I first started at AEI, uh, I, I had the privilege of in, introducing the then vice president of the United States, Dick Cheney, at an event. And afterwards, I was so nervous. And afterwards, my boss took me aside with a little word of counsel. And he said, you know, Danny, uh, you don't actually need to read your own name from your notes. And I said, no, dude, you don't understand. I do. I couldn't have told you my own name. That's how nervous I was. But, you know, practice makes perfect. You know, part of what uh, I enjoy about the show so much, what I think it makes it so entertaining as well as interesting is the way that you and Mark Thiessen, your co-host, attack everything in, in sort of Statler and Waldorf mode. You're a little bit cranky. You're a little bit world weary. Is that deliberate or is that just you guys at this point? You know, Mark and I are our best friends, um, and uh, we've we've known each other since I helped bring him on to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee back in early 1995, maybe even late 1994. Um, I knew him since before he was married. His wife is a really dear friend, so he's like my day husband, and uh, he literally refers to me nagging him like his day wife. So that may offend some people because some people think that husbands and wives don't nag each other. Um, I haven't met that couple yet, and that's really our vibe. Do you and he disagree much on, on policy and substance? We do. Um, we do. We are, you know, we're both, we are both conservative um, by, by inclination, but Mark's more socially conservative than I am. I know he wouldn't mind my saying so. It's obvious in his writing. Um, and, and I think he was always much more willing um, <laughs> before uh, the, this election to give Donald Trump the benefit of the, the doubt. He's better at weighing um, things, you know, he's better at seeing things as a binary sort. So, you know, where I may not like something objectively, he always asks the question, yes, but what would it have been if Hillary Clinton were president? Or how would this have happened, you know, if, if you know, Nancy Pelosi were running things? And so he's, he's good at that. But we are, you know, we're different. We don't no, it's a difference of nuance. It's not, it's not sort of, you know, AOC versus Mitch McConnell. Last question really is, what will the end of the Trump era mean for your podcast? Do you anticipate having to make changes? So the first thing that we're doing, which we're really, uh, which we're really stoked about, is that uh, if anybody's listened to our podcast, they know we have a pretty hilarious opening sort of jingle, which um, which our producer Alexa made, and that is Donald Trump saying again and again and again all things along the lines of "What the hell is going on? We have to find out what the hell is going on." So we decided that post. Uh, the Trump era, we should have a new intro. So we're going to introduce that um, uh, actually inauguration day. And we're very excited. It turns out that lots and lots of politicians say what the hell is going on all the time. It's <laughs> just perhaps not that reassuring. I, look, you know, we're we're about we're about keeping people's feet to the fire. Fire, you know, we're a little bit about uh, deep dives. We're a little bit about truth to power. We're a little bit about uh, just you know having fun and and you know, we care a lot about foreign policy, but we've you know we had we had one of the first interviews with uh, Monsef Slawi, who was the head of Operation Warp Speed. I think all of those issues are going to continue to be hugely important in a Biden era. 
And I really hope that we're going to be able to continue to, you know, advocate for things we care about, but also educate for things that people need to know more about. Daniel Pletka, co-host of What the Hell is Going On. Thanks so much for talking. This has been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me too, Jonathan. Thanks a ton. And here's the episode, What the Hell is Going On with the Electoral College, which was originally released in December 14th, 2020. the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell? What the hell is going on is there's a big debate about the Electoral College and uh, its role in choosing our president. The proximate cause for tackling this subject is my newspaper, The Washington Post, editorialized against me uh, recently. We had a column arguing for abolishing the Electoral College. And they pointed out that I had pointed out in my column that if Trump had just flipped 78,000 votes in three states, he would be president today. And they point out, well, but he lost the popular vote by 5 million and that that would be a terrible outcome and that we should get rid of the Electoral College. And so I thought it would be a good idea for us to tackle this issue and uh, to talk to somebody who knows something about the Electoral College to explain both to us and to our listeners, why we have the Electoral College. Why, why did it come about and why is it a force for stability in our country? It's one of those things that is part of our system and that most people forget about during the four-year interregnum between elections. And it has fallen victim to the outcome-oriented politics of the modern era. In other words, I will bend and twist my arguments about our nation and stigmatize my opponents in order to ensure that the outcome is not simply congenial to me, but that will remain congenial to me for a very long time. So expand the Supreme Court and the filibuster, now it's the Electoral College. And I imagine there'll be lots of other such things, but it is actually worthy of a serious conversation and serious debate because I'll only speak for myself, don't really know a lot about the function and the history and the debate that goes on around the Electoral College. We have a wonderful guest to talk about that, Professor Alan Gelzo, who is actually a preeminent historian of Abraham Lincoln, but is also has really deeply studied the Electoral College. And so he's going to explain to us a lot of this in a, in a moment. But before we get to that, I, th I think you've hit on something important, Danny, which is unusual. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I saw that one coming. There's this just instinct to just throw out everything that was without any understanding of why it is. Right. So, you know, the Democrats want to get rid of the filibuster and we wanted to pack the Senate and our founders created a pretty good system that's kept our country stable for a long time. And they've created these institutions for a reason that we do not want to. We're not a, actually a democracy. We're a republic. 
and we're a constitutional republic. And so we don't necessarily want to be a direct democracy. A lot of countries around the world that are direct democracies are quite despotic. And a lot of countries that are, we consider paragons of democracy, don't elect their leaders directly, like Great Britain, where uh, there isn't even a vote for prime minister. Um, the prime minister can actually be thrown out of office and a new and appointed without even having an election. So, you know, the idea that we should just throw out these institutions that have served our country so well without much understanding of them is an instinct that I find troubling and worrisome as we get to the point where we may have, depending on how things turn out in Georgia, absolute power in the hands of one party. And that's another topic for discussion coming up in a future podcast. But this instinct to throw things away for the sake of immediate political gain is very troubling. Well, but don't forget what buttresses these arguments. The problem that we have is that you really can't have an intelligent debate about these things anymore because it is not simply the instinct to throw things out. It is the instinct to throw them out based on a foundation of false history. And, you know, this is where you end up in arguments that have no end, where you say that the United States was founded in order to perpetuate the institution of slavery. And this is the argument made by the New York Times and embraced by generations and being inculcated now in schools and in students. So it is almost impossible to actually have what you and I would call a normal argument because there's no agreement about what constitutes the past anymore. The other thing that people seem to think or not think through is the reality that, well, we would just have the same electoral result in the popular vote, but we just wouldn't have the electoral college, right? So, you know, Donald Trump got 74 million, Joe Biden got 80 million, so we, there you go. Well, no, if we got rid of the electoral college, the electoral college is why we have a two-party system. If you got rid of the electoral college, well, we might have a democratic socialist party in this country that would get 15, 20% of the vote. We might have a green party. We might have all sorts of different parties. And all of a sudden you'd start electing people, president who didn't even get in the forties, maybe in 30% of the vote or 35% of the vote. It could actually facilitate the election of more Donald Trumps because someone who can rally a large plurality of the country, but not a majority, the result might not be what the people who want to get rid of the Electoral College actually expect it to be. It could no. be that it would fuel populism rather than be a tamper on populism. So, you know, people don't think through the consequences of things. They just want to get rid of what is without any good reason. Well, no, no, no. They don't want to get rid of what is. They want to do something that they think will ensure a certain outcome. But you're exactly right. My favorite example of the most bastardized electoral system there is the system of proportional representation. Now, everybody will think I'm diving down a rabbit hole, but let me just take one second to talk about this. You know, Israel has had three elections in the last year and may well be headed for a fourth. Italy, my beloved Italy, has had more than 50 elections since the end of World War II. What is the beautiful system that delivers that sort of stability that people can really rely on? It is called proportional representation. So you get to make a party list and then your proportion of the vote is reflected in the proportion of the list that gets into the parliament. So you have this dictatorial system inside parties, but you also have, at least in Israel, a 5% threshold. So if you can just get 5% of the vote, you can have a political party 
And if you control two votes in the parliament or the Knesset in Israel or the parliaments in uh, the upper and lower houses in Italy, you can control who gets to be prime minister. It creates a system of kingmakers. And tiny, tiny footnote to this, when the United Nations in its wisdom was helping to decide the future electoral system of the government of Iraq, they looked around the world and said to themselves, what's the best system we could possibly have? Yes, that's right, because countries that start with an I should stick together. They chose proportional representation for Iraq, which has weirdly resulted in the exact same electoral disaster that happens in Israel and happens in Italy. So, you know, when we think about our system being bad, remember, there's always worse. Well, we should definitely remake our country in the image of Israel, Iraq, and Italy. That's definitely the way <laughs> I agree with you 100%. What I think people forget, you know, we have all these anachronisms in our system, like the two, two senators from every state, as opposed to, uh, you know, reflecting the population. There's a reason for that. It's the preventing the tyranny of the majority. We are not supposed to have a direct democracy where the majority rules because our country, our founders understood the majority rule can result in tyranny for the people who are not in the majority. And so there are all sorts of checks and balances and protections. You know, our founders did not believe in pure democracy for a reason. For all its flaws, we have the best political system on the face of the earth. It's ensured stability and representation, and people want to get rid of these institutions that have created stability. They won't like the instability that results if they succeed. So to delve into this and every other issue related to it, we completely lucked out in getting Professor Alan Gelzo to join us. He's an historian. He's the senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities and director of the Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship in the James Madison program at Princeton University. He's written extensively on the questions of the Electoral College, both taking on arguments against and, and dealing with the flaws, but most importantly, really understanding and explaining in beautiful terms the history behind these decisions. So have a listen. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Mark. So you have you are a uh, an expert on the Electoral College and you have written multiple times about this, but you wrote that abolishing the Electoral College would be a colossal political blunder. Tell us why. Well, for one thing, the Electoral College is a large-scale reminder of the fact that our political system is a federal system. We only got the Constitution in the first place because the Constitutional Convention persuaded the states to buy into a federation arrangement. We had had an earlier federation arrangement, that was the Articles of Confederation, but it was a spectacular flop. But not so much of a flop that the states were willing to give everything up. So we adopt a new federal structure. But you see, it's still a federal structure. It's a federation. Without the federation approach, we would have become balkanized. And as a result, we structure everything else in the Constitution around the federation idea as well. We divide powers between the states and the federal government. Uh, we have a Senate, two senators from each state. The states ratified the Constitution by state conventions. The states have to approve amendments. The Constitution can only be terminated by an action of the states in a national convention. So you might say federalism is, it's in the bones of the nation and it's baked into the Constitution. And I'd be concerned that we can't start removing some of those bones 
without the whole body collapsing. We would need to sit down and say, we're going to have to reconsider the entire constitution because so many of these things are interlinked. That's entirely apart from the practical consideration that the electoral college, as it's described in the constitution, actually comprises 10% of the entire document. People are surprised when I mention this to them, but there is no provision in the constitution for a popular vote. The only mechanism in the constitution for electing a president is the electoral college. So if you take out the electoral college, you have removed a substantial chunk of the constitution. And what are you going to make it up with? There are some people who I've talked to on this subject who are perfectly frank and say, well, let's just junk the whole thing. Well, if that's where you want to go, at least be candid to say that's where you want to go. But inevitably, that's where the fall of the dominoes will take you. So start at this one place with the Electoral College. There really logically will not be a stopping point until we say, let's get rid of the Constitution completely. I have so many things I, I want to ask you. Uh, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. You've written extensively on this, and, and it was an, an education for me to go through your writings and learn more. One of the things that, that you said, and I'm just going to quote it directly because you said it so nicely, but I'd love for you to explain it a little better, is none of this i.e. abolishing the uh, electoral college, is likely to produce a more democratic election system. There are plenty of democracies, you wrote, like Great Britain, where no one ever votes directly for the head of state. So that's another point, I think, that, that deserves to be made here, which is that our system, while unique in its construction in some ways, is not unique in its conception. Can you expand a little bit on that? The curious thing is that most functioning democracies, and I stress functioning, most functioning democracies have some kind of electoral college system. If, if not, strictly speaking, an electoral college the way we have it, then certainly a stage-by-stage -stage process of selecting a head of state. And Great Britain is the most obvious example. No one votes for prime minister. You're voting for the particular representatives to parliament from your electoral district, and depending on their party affiliation, their party affiliation in caucus elects who's going to be the leader of the party. And that person almost always is the prime minister. I mean, there have been some moments when the head of the party has not been the prime minister, but those have been oddball moments like Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill. Chamberlain still retained head of party while Churchill was, was prime minister, but that, that, that's rare. Not only Britain, but move over to Germany. Germany is a federal republic, as we are. And it has, what I have to say is, one of the most bizarre and confusing systems for electing a head of state, where you actually participate in two elections simultaneously for the president of the federal republic and for the chancellor of the federal republic. And it's the kind of system that I have to say only the Germans could have invented. It's got so many complex moving parts. It's like, it's like one of those Bavarian cuckoo clocks. And I'm so glad that I, that I don't have to vote that way. Our electoral college is a model of simplicity by comparison with the Germans. Now, turn the example to those states which do have direct popular votes for the head of state. And what you get are places like Iran, Mexico. How eager are we to divert ourselves in that direction, I don't think, as soon as we realize it, I, I don't think our, our eagerness holds up very much. 
the plea that is often made against the Electoral College, that we should have one man, one vote all the time, is the kind of thing that resonates very well if what you're talking about is, let's say, a New England town meeting, where everybody knows everybody else. But in a nation of 330 million people, then the problems begin to multiply in, in very serious ways. And the founders realized this, which is why they, they set up the system they had. And they didn't invent it simply out of thin air. Almost all the governors of the then states of the United States were elected indirectly, usually by the state legislatures. So when the Constitutional Convention writes into the Constitution this electoral college provision, uh, they're not doing anything at all unusual or abnormal. They were simply using the methods that at that time were already being used by most of the states for electing whoever was to be the head of state or a governor in that particular case. So one of the arguments against the Electoral College is that it's an anachronism that was designed to protect slavery. You've pointed out that that's not the case. And in fact, it was the reason we were able to abolish slavery because Abraham Lincoln was elected by with just 39% of the vote. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's often said that the Electoral College was invented to protect slavery because the Electoral College is computed on the basis of number of representatives in the House of Representatives plus two senators. So every state's electoral votes are a quick addition problem of those two numbers. Well, under the terms of the three-fifths clause, as it existed before the Civil War, states that legalized slavery were able to count three-fifths of their slaves toward that representation number. So the accusation is often made, aha, the Electoral College, because it incorporates it, it involves this three-fifths compromise in the Constitutional Convention over slavery, must therefore be complicit in slavery and in holding uh, slavery as a power in the selection of the president. But it doesn't really work out that way when you look very closely at the Constitutional Convention, or how that vote operated. I mean, for one thing, discussions about slavery in the Constitutional Convention take place on two major occasions, neither of which has anything to do with the decisions about how to elect a president. It's an entirely separate category. When the decision is made about an electoral college, that actually comes almost at the very end of the Constitutional Convention. And it's a decision which is made because they're looking for a way to split the difference between a direct popular election, which some people favored, but most people feared would create a kind of Alexander or Caesar, you know, someone who could say to the other branches of the government, look, I was popularly elected by the people. I have a popular mandate away with you against those who said, well, we should elect the president through Congress, the way it was done in the state legislatures. But many people then said, no, 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 we can't do it that way, because then the president of the United States as the head of the executive branch is only going to be the creature of the legislative branch. So as a compromise between these two, what they hit upon is the use of an electoral college. And they hit on the use of this in very large measure because that was what they used in most of the states. So there's no discussion of this. There's no point at which this discussion has any connection point to slavery. The two proceed through the Constitutional Convention on entirely separate paths. And then if you actually look at how the Constitution functions this way and how uh, the Electoral College functions, what you find is that 
first of all, the three-fifths clause doesn't come into operation until later on in the 1790s. This is because until you have a census taken under the Constitution in 1790, no one really knows what the exact population of the United States is. So the Constitutional Convention creates what, what really amounts to a thoroughly arbitrary apportionment of votes in the House of Representatives. It has nothing to do with slavery, and it was just a raw guess on the subject of what the population of the various states is. So there's, there's no sense in which the three-fifths clause pays into the creation of the first Congresses under the Constitution. The only national election in which the three-fifths clause seemed to play any significant role which is to say slavery played any significant role, would have been 1800. But the election of 1800 was a bizarre election anyway, and for a number of reasons. If you look at the decades which follow 1800 all the way up until 1860, what you see is that the operation of the three-fifths clause declines rapidly in significance. It really adds less than 10% to Southern delegations in the House of Representatives. And it doesn't really do much to affect the Electoral College. I mean, in the Electoral College in 1796, the North already had, Northern states already had, 52.9% of the electors. That percentage increases by 1840 to 57%. And by 1860, Northern states, free states, uh, have 60% of the electors. So it wasn't slavery in the Electoral College that people saw operating to the benefit of slavery. Southerners actually saw more protection for slavery in the parity they enjoyed in the Senate, in other words, two senators from each state, rather than in the House or in the Electoral College. The Electoral College really does not operate in any significant way to provide heft for slavery. Uh, that's, that's a popular misconception, but a serious misconception. It just happens to be wrong. Could you tell us a little bit about the 1860 election, which brought him into power? I, he only got 39% of the vote, so it was the Electoral College that gave us Lincoln. Well, yes, this is the curious thing that people who want to gasconade on the subject of the Electoral College seem to forget that the chief means of getting us Abraham Lincoln was the Electoral College. Uh, the election of 1860 was a peculiar election because on the one hand, you had the Republican Party nominating Abraham Lincoln, and the Republicans were a relatively new party. They'd only run their first presidential candidate four years before in 1856 with John Charles Fremont. So the idea that the Republicans were suddenly going to be this new wave was pushing things a bit. The problem was that the Democratic Party, the Democratic opposition, both Northern and Southern, fractured. Northern and Southern Democrats had stopped trusting each other. And when Northern Democrats wanted to nominate Stephen A. Douglas as the Democratic nominee in 1860 for president, Southerners balked at that. They walked out of the nominating convention in Charleston. When the Democratic convention reconvened in Baltimore, they walked out again. And this time they met separately and produced their own nominee, John C. Breckinridge. So the Democratic Party suddenly finds itself with two candidates, Douglas, who's the candidate of the Baltimore Convention, and Breckinridge, who's the candidate of the pro-slavery rump. And then a third party elbows its way onto the table, uh, and that is the Constitutional Union Party, the old Upper South ex-Whigs. They split the vote dramatically, and they split it so badly that Abraham Lincoln 
only polls 39% of the popular vote, but he polls it in those states which are rich in electoral votes, that, and that is the northern states. And so he wins the presidency through the Electoral College, even though he doesn't win a single electoral vote in the slave states. So the Electoral College thus provides the ticket, not only for the election of Abraham Lincoln, but ultimately the abolition of slavery itself. In that respect, we owe the Electoral College a tremendous boon of thanks for being the mechanism that leads us to the abolition of slavery. It's ironic, isn't it? So part of the the challenge that we face up to, and obviously the reason why the Electoral College is on so many people's lips at this moment is because of the potential divergence, as there was in 2016, between the college result and the popular vote. And the argument that people want to make that fundamentally this is a disenfranchisement of voters. It, it seems to me, though, that there's an objection in the other direction. And that is the, the, the decision by states to apportion all of their electoral college votes based on their popular vote rather than district by district which would seem to be actually more equitable. Uh, there seems to be an argument for disenfranchisements on the state level in the Electoral College. How do you break that down? Does that make sense? Or is it just a yet another bastardization of the founders' ideas? Well, it's one of those arguments which is a little bit like putting a 10-foot plank across a chasm 10 feet wide. Uh, it's the kind of thing that looks good, but don't try to walk on it. And let me go into the weeds to illustrate what I mean. What's really being complained about here is the so-called winner-take-all rule, that in a particular state, whoever wins the popular vote in that particular state wins all of the electoral votes of that state. And that's what is the governing rule in 48 of the 50 states, the only exceptions being Nebraska and Maine, and they have their own way of apportioning their electoral vote based on their House of Representative districts. But in most of the other states, it's, it's a winner-take-all rule. And the argument is that the winner-take-all rule cancels out the vote of each and every citizen voter unless they, they cast it for the winning candidate. So let's take Texas as an example. Uh, and, and I am going into the weeds here, but stay with me. In Texas in 2016, 3.8 million Texans voted for Mrs. Clinton. But the winner-take-all rule directed all of Texas 38 electors to deliver their votes for Mr. Trump. And since a large proportion of Mrs. Clinton's voters in Texas were Black and Hispanic, it's argued that the winner-take-all rule uh, violates the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection and perpetuates racial discrimination. Uh, what people have suggested is substituting a proportional method. So you base the number of electoral votes on the percentage that a candidate gets in a particular state. All right, let's take that literally. Mrs. Clinton would have won the votes on a proportional basis of 15.5664 Texas electors. Mr. Trump, based on his numbers, would have won 18.8028 electors. Or if we apply that to Pennsylvania, Mrs. Clinton would have earned 9.492 electoral votes instead of none, and Mr. Trump would have won 9.636 electoral votes instead of 20. 
All right, that's how it would break out. And here you see the practical problem emerging. It's buried in those decimal points. If the purpose of getting rid of winner take all is that voters not be disenfranchised by the winner take all system, then the people that promote this have got some explaining to do because it's electors and not mathematical abstractions which do the voting in the electoral college. So Mrs. Clinton's 15.5664 Texas electors would either have to become 15 or 16. You can't do a point blah, blah, blah elector. If the former, then 0.5664 Texas voters have poofed into non-existence. And in Texas, since each of the state's electoral votes speaks for 236,000 voters, that means that over 100,000. My name's Kurt Jaimungo. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. Pro-Clinton Texans would be disenfranchised under that plan. In Wisconsin, where each of the state's 10 electoral votes represents 297,000 voters, the 4.722 votes eked out by Mrs. Clinton would have to become five electors, thus turning 412,000 non-Clinton voters into pro-Clinton voters. Now, if disenfranchisement is what we're trying to avoid by junking winner-take-all, we haven't avoided it. We've, we simply found another way to disenfranchise people, but we do it by percentages. So getting rid of winner-take-all turns out not, in fact, to be a solution. It only provides a different problem. Goodness me. So just a quick follow-up. There's another notion, and, I, and Mark and I have actually sort of talked to AEI Yuval Levin about this because we see things differently, but perhaps you have even a different insight. And that is, okay, maybe the problem is with that percentage. Maybe we need a bigger electoral college. Maybe we need to increase the size of the House of Representatives, something that the Democrats would like to do, something that the New York Times editorial page would like to do, Maybe we should increase the size of the Senate, but overall, what we really should do is increase the size of the Electoral College to make it more representative. What do you think? Well, there's an argument connected to that that runs like this. Wyoming, and Wyoming is the one that always gets picked on with this. Wyoming has three electoral votes. That's because it has one representative in the House, but two senators. California? Oh, California has 55 electoral votes. That's 53 representatives plus two senators. Well, what that works out to when you divide it up is that a voter in Wyoming technically gets six times the bang for their buck that a voter in California gets. All right, that becomes an argument in some people's hands for getting rid of the electoral college. I say, why not look at it the other way? Why not make that an argument for breaking up California? Look at the way California votes. In 2016, it gave 61% of its popular vote to Mrs. Clinton. 
And so she won all 55 of California's electoral votes. The problem is that that majority was won in 32 counties clustered around San Francisco and Los Angeles. The rest of the state, 22 counties, went Republican. But they got no say in how California's electoral votes were cast, despite making up a solid block of the state north of San Francisco. So what's the solution? Well, why not break up California into two states and allow Northern California to be represented the way that it wants? There are, in fact, activists in Northern California who are promoting the idea of such a separate state. They want to call it the state of Jefferson. It would involve most of the counties of California, north of San Francisco, north of Sacramento, and probably incorporate some of the southern counties of Oregon who are of like mind. And this is what they want to call the state of Jefferson. There's a website for this proposed state of Jefferson. So why not? That would certainly take a dramatic step towards eliminating this supposed inequity between Wyoming and California as it principally exists. It won't happen because that would mean adding two more Republican senators to the Senate and about 20 more Republican seats in the House. (laughs) And that's why that particular inequity isn't going to be corrected. But California is not the only example this way. Take Illinois. There are 100 counties in Illinois, but only in, this is in 2016, only 11 of them went Democratic. Uh, Nevertheless, Mrs. Clinton won the popular vote in Illinois, 3 million to 2 million, and entirely because of the Chicago area. So she got all of Illinois' 20 electoral votes. Is that fair to the rest of the state? So why not break up Illinois? Of course, if you do, you're going to send still more Republican senators and representatives to Congress. So if what we want is greater equity in elections, then what we should do is not to get rid of the Electoral College, we should break up some of the states. I mean, since when? When was it ever handed down from Mount Olympus that California should occupy the boundaries that it occupied in 1850? Why should Illinois occupy the boundaries that it occupied as a result of the Northwest Ordinance? Isn't that just as antique? Isn't that just as out of date a way of understanding the functioning of the electorate as the Electoral College itself? Why not? So here's the other counter-argument to that is, well, why don't we just go go with a popular vote? My editors at the Washington Post uh, who uh, criticized my take on this said that uh, Republican candidates would then seek votes in every part of the country, and including blue states, and Democrats would do the same in red states. Talk talk to us a little bit about what would happen if we got rid of the Electoral College. What would be the unforeseen uh, consequences of that? Well, the unforeseen consequence, I think, is fairly obvious, and that is presidential campaigning would take place in about four or five major urban areas in the country, and the rest of the country would have nothing. They would become inconsequential in the view of presidential elections. So that's one thing. Certainly, the Electoral College was not invented to force presidential candidates to appeal to a wider range of voters than just the urban centers, just in today's terms, California and New York. Uh, That's not the way the Electoral College was invented. And I have to say, it's not the best argument in favor of the Electoral College, because what it means is instead of just appealing to four or five urban areas in two states, candidates now have to appeal to 10 to 12 states, those so-called swing states. Now, they leave the others just as neglected. But on the whole, I have to say, forcing the presidential candidates to go out and campaign in 10 to 12 states is still better than just campaigning in two. 
So that's one thing. A second thing concerns voter fraud. Concern about voter fraud actually begins with Blackstone's commentaries in 1765, because Blackstone, as early as that, was concerned that popular elections are too frequently bought with all kinds of influence, partiality, and artifice. And he was not wrong. The British electoral system was rancid with, in Blackstone's day, straight up through the 19th century. Voter fraud in America is as, if I can put it this way, voter fraud in America is as American as apple pie. I mean, there's always been voter fraud. Abraham Lincoln was complaining about voter fraud in the senatorial election in 1858. But the Electoral College acts as a restraint on voter fraud. Why? Because there's no point in the parties playing games in Montana, Idaho, and Kansas, because they won't get much bang for their buck in terms of the electoral votes of those states. But if the election of a president is all based on a national total, then fraud can be conducted everywhere and count. It can be conducted in the most remote locations. It can be conducted in hundreds of locations. And the framers sensed this in the Constitutional Convention. Governor Morris said that the Electoral College would guarantee that since electors would vote at so great a distance from each other, the great evil of cabal was avoided. It would be impossible to corrupt them. Fraud can take place so easily. And if we go to a national popular vote, it can take place so extensively that tracking it down and the litigation that would ensue from the tracking it down would take so long and involve so many complexities that we could be months before we had any kind of certainty of the election of a president. And you simply cannot, you, you cannot sustain the government with that injecting that degree of uncertainty into the electoral process. One of the things the Electoral College does, and it's one of the invisible things it does, it confers legitimacy. And in a democracy, legitimacy is the gold standard. Absent legitimacy, what takes over is factionalism. Factionalism leads to violence. Violence leads to anarchy, and anarchy leads to despotism. The Electoral College, in its own quiet, undemonstrative way, is one rampart that the Constitution puts in the place of that process. And while it doesn't wear the badge of that very, very easily, once you pry into it closely, you begin to see the benefit the Electoral College really does provide for us in terms of our electoral system. Let me just ask you quickly, at the risk of delving into issues of constitutional law that perhaps I don't understand, there is this national popular vote interstate compact movement. And part of this obviously goes, comes to the first three words, which is the, the national popular vote, which forces theoretically states to go with the, the national vote rather than their own state's vote. But some constitutional scholars have suggested that, that the very idea of this interstate compact in place of a constitutional amendment is itself unconstitutional. Again, we're, we're getting back into the weeds, but this is important because I think it's got some steam. Help us understand it. Well, the National Popular Vote Compact is an agreement in theory among states that they will 
direct their electoral votes towards the candidate with the greatest national popular vote. And while that sounds like it's an agreeable compromise among like-minded people to damp down potential controversy between the popular vote result and the electoral college vote result, once again, we're looking at a situation where more is promised than can actually be delivered. The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which in large measure was devised by my friend Akil Reed Amar, who I've often had discussions with, and, and I must say very interesting uh, civil and, and profitable uh, debates on the subject of the Electoral College. The first problem is that it is probably not constitutional. Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution prohibits states from entering into what it calls uh, any agreement or compact with another state uh, without congressional approval. So right away, there's a constitutional problem in the path of the use of this, this interstate compact. The second problem is there's no enforcement mechanism in it. You might have a number of states who before an election are perfectly happy and willing to enter into this compact and say, yes, we'll go together with it. But when election day comes and the states look at the result, and perhaps the result has gone in a very different direction from what the state governor or the state legislature anticipated, they'll back out. They'll say, no, no, we don't think so. Um, the voters in our state pointed in a different direction, so we're going to back out of this. There's no punishment for backing out of it. There's no enforcement mechanism in the compact, and there can't be. What are the other members of this compact going to do? Send the National Guard to invade a recalcitrant state? No, that's not going to happen. So there's no enforcement mechanism if states that have said at one point, yes, we'll participate, uh, if they decide after the fact to back out. There's no guarantee that that would not happen and no mechanism that would keep it from happening. So once again, you have a proposal here which looks like it's going to deliver but in fact, the pizza never shows up at the door. Well, in 1969, the House voted 338 to 70 to abolish the Electoral College, and it nearly passed the Senate, but it was filibustered. If the Democrats uh, win two races in Georgia, they will uh, have a, a majority in the Senate, and they have threatened to eliminate the filibuster. So could you see a possibility that if Democrats could take control of the Senate, that the Democratic House and Democratic Senate might actually pass a uh, legislation uh, eliminating the Electoral College uh, or a constitutional amendment eliminating the Electoral College? Well, there's two things there. A majority in the Senate or a majority in the House can pass legislation, but they can't pass an amendment. Ah, there you go. An amendment requires a supermajority, and that's not going to be forthcoming, certainly not in this next Congress. One of the big surprises of the 2020 election, among many surprises, uh, was the closing, the, the dramatic closing of the gap between Democrats and Republicans in the House. And there are no Republicans. I, ca I cannot imagine off the top of my head any Republican who is going to vote for an amendment that would eliminate the Electoral College. And there will be a number of Democrats who will be fearful of voting that way because of repercussions in their districts. They're anxious about 2022. And they are not going to welcome painting more targets on their backs. So it won't, as an amendment, clear the House, it won't clear the Senate. And above all, it's not going to get ratified by the state legislatures. Because again, one of the surprises of the 2020 election was how Republican representatives gained in terms of their control of state legislatures. So the requisite supermajority for an amendment eliminating the Electoral College it's simply got too many 
unscalable walls to scramble over. And, and it's simply not going to happen, at least not under the current circumstances. I'm sure they would love to do it, but even if they were able to add, for instance, representatives from um, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico as representatives and senators to the existing uh, number in the House and the Senate, they still would not have enough, still would not have the majority necessary to pass a constitutional amendment. What's more, you'd have to do more than just pass a constitutional amendment eliminating the Electoral College. You would also have to pass a similar amendment or an extended amendment that would describe an alternative means of electing a president of the United States. Because as I said before, the Constitution only has one mechanism for electing a president and the Electoral College. If you get rid of that, you have to put something else in its place. And disagreement over how that is going to happen could probably only be resolved by calling another constitutional convention. The provisions for electing a president are simply too large a portion of the existing constitution and too liable to be the epicenter of tremendous political firestorms that I honestly cannot see it happening in any other way except a new constitutional convention. That, again, given the Republican majorities in state House and state Senates, state legislatures as a whole, uh, I simply do not see that happening. You've been incredibly generous with your time, so I'll ask a final question, and it's a two-part question. First, can you talk a little bit about uh, the role that the Electoral College plays in our two-party system um, and ensuring that, uh, which is one of the great forces of stability in our country. And second of all, one of the defenses of the Electoral College is that it is, with a few exceptions, match the popular vote. And many of those exceptions have come recently. In 2000, Bush-Gore, but it was only a separation of 500,000 votes in the, in the Electoral College. In the Clinton-Trump election in 2016, it was 3 million votes. This time around, if Trump had just switched about 80,000 votes in a few states, he would have won the Electoral College, but there's a gap of more than 5 million. It's possible that as the people move to urban centers, this could be a permanent feature of our system increasingly. Is that worrisome? And uh, does that threaten the legitimacy of the Electoral College? Well, I don't think so. Uh, for one thing, the Electoral College has functioned in a way that has tracked the popular vote pretty consistently. I mean, 17 out of 29 U.S. presidential elections have been decided by 200 or more electoral college votes. So we're not really seeing a dysfunctional system, which is constantly creating or generating all kinds of bizarre formulations and inequities. Uh, most of the time, it works. Those times when it hasn't, quote unquote, worked. It's actually worked better than we might have hoped, because one of the prime examples, of course, is Abraham Lincoln in 1860. Another less visible example is John Quincy Adams in 1824. Andrew Jackson in the election of 1824 uh, had uh, a plurality in the Electoral College and in the popular vote, but he didn't have the majority needed for victory in the Electoral College. So it gets thrown into the House of Representatives and the re-upshot of it is that John Quincy Adams gets elected. Now, I have to say for my own part, I infinitely prefer the election of John Quincy Adams to that of Andrew Jackson. 
I know that's not a burning issue for most people today, but look, I'm a historian. These things are still alive for me. So my, I, I have to confess, uh, I, I much preferred the election in 1824 of John Quincy Adams. At least for four years, it staved off this genocidal removal of the Indian tribes to what is now Oklahoma. It preserved a federal economic system based on the Second Bank of the United States. All that, of course, went by the boards in 1828 when Jackson does get elected, and we all can look back on that and scratch our heads and say, why did we do that? So when the Electoral College does, quote unquote, not function, some of those times have actually been for the benefit of Americans. We can be glad that that it didn't, quote unquote, function in some kind of automatic way. But most of the time it does, and in so doing what it does is to confer that precious gift of legitimacy in a democracy. The other question then comes up, if you take out the Electoral College, what is that going to do to the overall landscape of voting? Is it going to foster third party candidates? Yes, it's going to foster third party, fourth party, fifth party, sixth ad infinitum. And what you will then wind up with, since no one has to worry about getting a majority in the Electoral College, what you will wind up with is presidents who are elected by a popular vote that is somewhere down in the 40s or the 30 percent. And at that point, people look at that and say, why should I regard that president as legitimate? All the other votes were siphoned off by these other parties. The president who does wind up with the most votes gets, let's say, 35%. People will say, why should we regard that as legitimate? And that provides yet another opportunity for division, for illegitimacy, for lack of confidence. And at the end of the day, what holds democracies together is the sense of confidence that people have in each other, that what is going on in their system is something that every one of them can tolerate. When that gets removed, then that's when democracy founders and begins to head down the path that I'd earlier described, which has its ultimate terminal point in some form of despotism. So the two-party system, as much as people complain about it as binary, as limiting, has been a key factor in legitimacy. And one thing which has made the two-party system function the way it has is because of the needs imposed by the Electoral College. Take that out of the picture. And the electoral system for United States presidents becomes a much more random, much more capricious, and much more arbitrary affair. When that happens, confidence and legitimacy go out the window. Thank you so much. This has been both an education and a pleasure, really. you You've been so generous with your time. Thank you for joining us. I I love this. Such a pleasure to virtually at least meet you and, and have a conversation <laughs> with you. So well, uh, this has been I'm, a real personal thrill for me. Well, good. I'm I'm happy this provides some some light on this. Now, I I will say this: I do not promote myself as a constitutional law expert or even an expert on the, on, on the Electoral College. I wandered into this because a friend of mine back in 2016. James Hume, who's a partner in a Washington law firm there, Aaron Fox, he got into something of an argument with um, someone who was very upset about the Electoral College result in 2016. And he turned, because Jay and I go back to high school, we were the same class in high school. So he turned to me and said, shouldn't we write something about 
the Electoral College. And I said, all right, yeah, let, let me start thinking about this. And one thing led to another, and we wrote, co-wrote the op-ed that appeared in the Washington Post in 2016. And then we also co-wrote a number of other pieces on the subject of the Electoral College. So without being a constitutional law person, being only a benighted uh, history person, here I found myself uh, talking to people about the Electoral College. It has been an education for me, too. Thank you for the education you provided us and our listeners. As I said to Dr. Gelza, this was an education and a pleasure. But it also reminds me, and I want to pull on this thread that you talked about in our intro as well, of the risk of the tyranny of the mob, of doing what is popular at the moment. I fail to understand why it is that in a country that believes so fervently and has acted so aggressively to right the mistreatment of minorities, that somehow the protection of political minorities <laughs> is such an afterthought. It's really true. You know, I, I look at, you know, I still got one kid in high school and I look at everything that school does. And there is not a micro minority issue, whether it is religious or it is sexual or it is, I can't even think of another subgroup, but I'm sure There's there are so many 14. today. It's hard to keep track. <laughs> I, I, I know. But of course, the notion that there should be a group for people who don't agree with the popular view in, of the teachers is anathema to them. Absolutely. And also religious liberty seems to be the one that, the, that, that no one seems to care about, that uh, people should not be able to. They, they want to trample religious liberty and make the uh, little sisters of the poor violate their religious tenets and all the rest of it. It's favored minorities that get the protection, not, not the unfavored minorities. But the whole point of our constitutional system is to protect the unfavored minorities, whatever they may be at the time. The reason we have a, a First Amendment isn't to protect popular speech, it's to protect unpopular speech. And so, again, our founders created a system that was specifically designed to protect political minorities, to protect regions of the country from domination by other regions of the country. And so, you know, we, we've inherited a true gem from our founders and like petulant children, we are not happy with our inheritance and are complaining. But I don't know about you, I'm pretty happy with our inheritance and I don't wanna change it. No, I, I, I have to agree with you actually uh, for once that, uh... <laughs> Mark, even, what did our boss say? Blind hog the blind hog once, once in a while. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And by the way, speaking of blind hogs and forgetting things, uh, we forgot to remind people to subscribe, to review. If you like this, recommend it to your friends. And, uh, and thank you for joining us. We are intending to have even more fun in the era that comes after the era of Donald Trump. So stick with us, folks, and thanks for being here. Remember, complaints to Mark, compliments to me. We'll be back next week. Take care. That was Danielle Pletka and Mark Thiessen talking to Alan Guelzo for their podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Thanks to AEI for letting us air the episode. And that'll do it for this week's Foreign Policy Playlist. Darcy Palder and Rob Sachs produced our show. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to tell me about a great podcast that I might not know about, please do so. I'm all ears and always on the lookout. You can email me at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. And for more information about FP Podcasts, please check out our website, foreignpolicy.com, 
or check out our Facebook group. I'm Jonathan Tepperman. I'll talk to you again soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>